You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. We finally arrived at the third section of the book of Leviticus, uh, what I have labeled as the program for worship. So to refresh everyone's memories, the book of Leviticus has holiness and sanctification as its main theme. It's a book that is leading us down the road of Uh, seeing and understanding how holy God is and at the same time grasping what that calling or what his holiness means, the calling it places on our lives. So just as God is holy, he calls for holiness amongst his people. But he does more than just call for holiness. You see, he makes a provision for his people to be consecrated to him and to be holy and have their sins covered by the blood of the sacrifice. The the book of Leviticus portrays the the holiness of God. It also portrays the severity of sin. Okay, this is a a concept that is lost in much of the modern day church. The severity of our sin. Realizing that our sin actually pollutes. And pollutes so deeply that it had to be scrubbed and cleansed by the blood of the animals. It had to be smeared upon the altar in order for it to be covered. The book of Leviticus also teaches us about the grace of God, though. The grace of God to his people. And in the New Testament, that grace is obviously portrayed in the person of Jesus Christ. Our sacrifice, the Lamb of God who not only covered our sin, but removed them completely and justifies us before a holy God. So Jesus is seen in the book of Leviticus. Now, if you remember, I've divided the book into four sections for our study here on Wednesday nights. The first section was the first seven chapters, the payment for worship, what God required in order for his people to come into his presence. That's verses, or chapters one through seven. The, the second section, the longest one, and what we just finished was the participants in worship. The participants being the congregation of Israel as well as the priests. God addressed both of those uh, uh, peoples. In uh, chapter 23, we now begin the third section, the program of worship, when God will lay out uh, over the course of the calendar year the different events that we're going to bring the children of Israel together. And then the fourth one and last section is the practice of worship. What is to look like practically in the land when they get there? So in this third section tonight, we'll be studying God's calendar, uh, his program of worship for Israel. He's basically going to lay out the calendar year. He's going to give us some of the logistics for each of these ceremonies or each of these festivals. And he's going to talk to us about what it means. So let's look at verse 1. And we'll begin, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. We'll pause here really quickly. This, the sacred assemblies that God is referring to were meant to actually be public worship ceremonies. The idea behind these festivals was it was an opportunity for God to meet with his people. I love this about God. I I love the fact that God is a God who loves to meet with his people. He loves to uh, gather together and and, in a corporate setting have fellowship with his people. And I love that. It was not only that, it was also an opportunity for these people to come and meet with their God. So they were sacred assemblies, but they were designated to meet. 
And, and that's really what the, the purpose was behind it. Interestingly enough, these festivals that we're going to read about and study tonight, they also coincide with specific events in the life of Christ and the church, the New Testament church. Therefore, what we're about to study tonight, it's, it's intimately tied together with the New Testament. I want you to grasp that tonight. You see, if we're wise, we'll notice that connection. We'll notice those ties with the events in the life of Jesus and in, with the church because they were going to clue us in to future events as well, I believe. So let's continue on. The, the Lord men- mentions, first of all, the Sabbath principle in verse 3. He says, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a sacred, or a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, I want to pause very quickly and just remind you that uh, a lot of the law that we're reading here, it's in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus means literally pertaining to the priests. These are instructions to the priests that they were to teach the people, uh, and, and, and much of it is ceremonial law. But I will say that there is a principle here that God is teaching us, which holds true today in our lives. Why does he mention the Sabbath day again? He's already gone over it in Exodus. He's already talked about it in, in other uh, portions of Scripture. And he'll talk about it again in Deuteronomy. Why is the Sabbath day so important to the Lord? What is its relationship with the festivals of the Lord? Well, I believe there's a few reasons for that. First off, God wants this day to be a celebration of worship. He wants it to be a day that's set apart specifically to celebrate our relationship with the God of the universe. Think about that for a second. Not many of us can claim to know the God of the universe. But God, he wants you to know him. And so he has set aside a day of the week that we might come, not in a burdensome, legalistic way, and go, oh man, you know, it's Sunday, I guess we got to go to church today, or, or man, it's the Lord's day, I guess we got to set aside some time for that. But rather, God wants us to rejoice in his grace and his love and his desire to be uh, with us. And so the Sabbath day was actually set up by God to be a blessing for his children, a celebration for his children. And secondly, and probably equally as important, God is setting up something here that is the underlying principle of the Sabbath day cycle. The Sabbath day, the, the Sabbath day principle, it's really an uh, underlying structure that connects all of God's laws and all of God's uh, laws about the festivals. Listen to this. On the seventh day of creation, God rested. God, the God of the universe. <laughs> Think about that. If, if the God of the universe took a break after he made this amazing planet that we live on and the stars and the galaxies and all of those systems, took a break and sat back and enjoyed that creation and enjoyed his relationship with man, don't you think that that says something to you and to me? It communicates to you and to me that, that we also need to follow in that example and rest, take a day of the week. It doesn't necessarily have to be Sunday. Sometimes that's not always possible. We understand that. God understands that. We're not living in this uh, Old Testament system anymore. But there should be a, a, a time in our hearts and in our lives where we realize, hey, I need to take a break. 
I need to let the material world rest for a little bit, and I need to come to the presence of God, and I just need to be with my God. That's something that we all need to learn from. Listen to this. On the seventh day of every week, God commanded his children to rest. But that's not all. Listen to this. There were seven festivals each year. And with those seven, with those seven festivals, there were seven days of special rest built into those seven festivals. Also, the majority of those festivals, they occurred in the seventh month of the year. Interesting. And every seventh year for the Israelite was to be a sabbatical year, and still is. It's a sabbatical year. Not only that, after 49 years, which is seven times seven, there was a super sabbatical year, which is known as the year of Jubilee. So the number seven is an important number in God's economy. That number, it symbolizes completion. It symbolizes perfection. Completeness and perfection. So that's why, God, that's, that's why this Sabbath day exhortation is so important. God uses it to teach us and show us the importance of taking a single day of rest each week and meet with him for worship. Since the Sabbath day was every week, having these other festivals added to the calendar every year, this would have broken up the monotony that we human beings tend to fall into. You, have you ever experienced that monotony of life where you just get into a routine? It's like you wake up the same time every day. You make the coffee the same way every day. You sit down and have breakfast the same way. Everything is just a routine in your life. Well, God realized that when we get into a routine, what happens? We, we go to sleep. We check out. It just becomes routine. It's like, you know, I come to church. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Good to see you too. We sit down. We worship. We get up. We go home and turn on the football game or have a, a barbecue, whatever we're going to do on Sunday afternoons. But it becomes routine. So God, knowing human beings, he says, you know what? I'm going to break that up. God, in his wisdom, says, listen, children of Israel, not only are we going to have a weekly meeting set aside for the Lord, but I'm also going to structure a structure of sevens into your calendar year that's going to cause you to break up the monotony with these festivals and and make you realize how important that one Sabbath day is every week. So we come now to the second uh, point tonight, the, the Feast of the Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're kind of together, uh, mashed together in, this, in these scriptures here. In verse 4, it says, These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. So, the first festival here mentioned is the Passover feast. Now, the Israelites were to commemorate the night that the angel of the Lord passed over their houses in Egypt, the, the houses that were, as you remember, covered with the blood of the Passover lamb. They were, they were to kill that Passover lamb and to take some of its blood, and they were to take that hyssop plant, dip it into that blood, and they were to paint the, lin- the, the, the doorposts of their house and the top part of their door uh, you know, up above and on both sides. And so you can see the picture there was uh, uh, of a cross. The blood of that lamb was to, to be posted there on top and the two sides of the door. And, and it would have dripped down to the bottom as well. So that door was covered. And that was the sign that the angel of the Lord would pass over your house and not bring death to the firstborn that lived within. So prophetically speaking, though, 
the Passover feast is related to the death of Jesus Christ. It's intricately tied to the death of Christ. And the New Testament recognizes that. In fact, the Apostle John, or uh, the writer John, in, in his gospel, I'm sorry, in Go- John's gospel, he writes about this. He talks about the fact that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God and that he was crucified on the Passover. So all who believe that Jesus died for them then, like the Old Testament the angel of the Lord that passed over them and didn't bring judgment upon them, so too the blood of Jesus Christ, when it is applied to your account and to my account, God's judgment, his wrath, it will pass over us. Now, on the next day following the Passover, the next feast began, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Festival of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord. And on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. Now, this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it begins the day after the Passover. And it commemorates the exodus from Egypt. You see, the night after the Passover... The Israelites were set free from Egypt, but because they had to leave in such a hurry, they had no time to leaven their dough. They they, they didn't have time to add that yeast to the dough because they didn't have time to let it rise and to bake it properly. So it had to be cooked quickly and consumed on the way. Imagine soda crackers, okay, with maybe a little bit of a honey taste. I'm not really sure. That's why they called it manna. You know what manna means, right? It means, what is it? It's a question. What is this? Imagine some sort of soda cracker, though, with, with some honey on it. I'm not sure. But I love soda crackers. Especially, a special treat for me is when I get the butter out of the refrigerator and I just kind of run that soda cracker through the butter and then pop it in my mouth. You guys ever tried that? I see some of you looking at me with disgust right now, but some of you are nodding your head. Okay, so I got some, some friends out there. But I, I would have been fine in the Exodus, eating soda crackers and sort of thing but you know what I just realized I realized I just confused manna with unleavened bread earlier so I can't do that I have to correct that mistake I'm sorry thank you for being gracious with me manna and unleavened bread two totally different things I got confused by the soda cracker thing so the Lord has a good way of just chastening me humbling me. But in the New Testament, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, how is it tied in? How does it apply in in our day? Well, it's tied in to the Lord's Supper. You see, here at Calvary Chapel Parish, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every first Sunday of the month. It's kind of the, the little tradition here, but we also like to do it here on Wednesday nights, don't we, sometimes? When we have an intimate night, we just want to worship Jesus and have some time with him. And this unleavened bread, it's tied to the Lord's Supper because Jesus is the bread of life who came down from heaven and offered his body for us. His body was broken for us. And when we eat of the unleavened bread that represents the sinless body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we partake of that bread, we can think, hey, this is tied into the book of Leviticus. This is tied in prophetically. The book of Leviticus was looking forward 
to the life of Jesus Christ, the sinless life that he was going to live, and how he was then going to offer his body on the cross for all of humankind. And so that is a picture of this feast of the unleavened bread. Also, the Apostle Paul equates the feast of unleavened bread with purging our lives from sin. You see, there was a tradition in the Jewish household before you got to the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it, when, it, when it began, the children of that Jewish house would run through the house and it was their job to find any source of leavened bread and to find that and to get it and to throw it away or they were to consume it before they got to that Feast of Unleavened Bread. Because during that week of unleavened bread, they were not allowed to have any leaven in the house. And so it was kind of a game in the Jewish household. And they would dispatch the kids and, you know, mom and dad would try to hide some of that in different places. And then the kids would try to discover it and then they would get rid of it. They had to purge that house of the leaven. And so the Apostle Paul grabs onto that tradition and he talks about that we as Christians are to purge our lives. We're to, com- we're to purge the Christian community that we fellowship in from sin, and so that's, that's something that, that the New Testament ties in directly to this feast of unleavened bread. Think about that with me for a minute. If we all, as Christians, were to grab onto that and say, you know what, I'm going to purge my life of sin, but not only that, I'm going to love brothers and sisters enough in the family of God where I fellowship to help them purge their lives of sin. Not in a judgmental way, not in the, the classic you know, religious police style, But in that style of, hey, brother, I love you, and because I love you, I see what this is doing to you. It's destroying your life, and I want to help you be be free, be purged from that sin. So it's all tied in to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Lord introduces another feast to us in verse 9, the Feast of First Fruits. It says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, Bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He's to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day before the Sabbath. On the day that you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb, a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hen of wine. Verse 14, you must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This, this is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. So I know it doesn't necessarily say it there, but this is the establishment of the feast of First fruits, and they'll talk more about the feast of first fruits in the book of Numbers, chapters twenty-eight and twenty-nine. But for tonight, so that we can understand it, it's a, it's a wave offering of the first fruits of the wheat harvest, or I'm sorry, the uh, barley harvest. Okay, because the barley harvest would always be harvested first, and then later on in the season it would be the wheat harvest. So what they would do is they would harvest that that barley, uh, and they would 
present a sheaf of it to the Lord. And remember the wave offering? It was this, this motion of the hands. You, the, the, the priest would hold it out to, the, to God and he would offer it up to God. And then it was as if God gave that offering back to him and he would receive it back to himself. So it was a waving of that offering, giving it to the Lord, presented it to him, and then God giving it back to the people to enjoy to have fellowship with God. That was the wave there that was going on with the barley and those other things. Now, the the ingredients of the wave offering, those were actually representations of thanksgiving to God for his provision physically, but also spiritually. And the idea behind the first fruits offering is that there would be more to follow, okay? I love this. It's the idea that you're bringing that first fruits to the Lord. It's not very much. It's just barley and those other ingredients, not very much of it. But you're giving it to the Lord, but you're saying, look, God, this is just the beginning. I know you're going to bless me. I know you're going to bring more. I know that there's going to be a harvest after this because the wheat harvest came later on in the season. So there was a down payment, so to speak. It was basically a down payment to God saying, you know what, God, I'm going to be coming back and I'll be bringing more. There'll be more of a harvest. Now, the Feast of First Fruits, it's connected to what? Can anybody tell me? Does anybody have, want to take a guess? The Feast of First Fruits, what that might be connected to in the New Testament? I heard somebody say something, but not loud enough that I could hear them. The birth of Jesus, that's a good guess, but that's not correct. You're close. Think the other end of his life. Resurrection, that's it, yes. It's connected to Christ's resurrection. So the first fruits is kind of a picture of the life of Christ being raised from the dead. In fact, it was the ceremony of first fruits that caused Paul the Apostle to say this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. In fact, if you have your Bible, would you flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tonight? And it's also on our screen. So if you don't have a Bible, you can read right off of there if you don't want to look it up. I always kind of like to flip through the pages of the Bible, though. It's kind of, it's kind of nice to do that. First Corinthians, get to know our Bibles a little bit. That way when we're not at church and Mr. Jed hasn't put it on the screen for us, we can still find it, right? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. We're going to read through verse 23. Paul the Apostle here speaking, he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits. See that word? First fruits. Same exact word there in the, in the Levitical chapter. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, he says. Verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Look at those encouraging words there. It's like Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one in importance, the first one that is, you know, has that power to be raised from the dead. But you know what? There's a harvest coming after him, isn't it? He was just the down payment. He was just the guarantee. Because if he was raised from the dead, guess what? All who die in Christ will also be raised from dead. He's our guarantee. Jesus Christ alive today is your guarantee that you are going to never die. 
that you are going to live forever. Jesus Christ will raise you from the dead and bring you to be with him. Also, it's interesting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, a little bit further on in your Bible, Colossians. You're looking past 2 Corinthians to the General Electric Power Company, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1, verse 18. Some of you remember that, huh? Or Gentiles eat pork chops. What are some of the other ones? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 1, verse 18. We read in that chapter that Jesus Christ is the first fruits or the firstborn from the dead. Paul says it explicitly there. He says, let, I'm sorry, I'm reading in chapter two. He says, he is, speaking of Christ, also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So what does it mean that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead? A lot of people get stumbled over that. In fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they build an entire false doctrine, a heresy on this verse because they don't understand that firstborn doesn't mean uh, that he was a created being that, that, um, and, and that he was, uh, well, let, let me just suffice it to say that when they say that, they're not understanding this phrase, firstborn from the dead. Because firstborn from the dead doesn't mean created. It means that he has been, uh, or he is first in supremacy, first in importance, first in, in the uh, um, importance of this idea, not in the order of it. We know that others have been born uh, or raised from the dead before him. But he was and is the first fruits. Of the gift of eternal life, which is available to all who believe in him. We come now to the fourth and the final feast of the first part of the year. That is the Feast of Weeks, which is known as Pentecost in the New Testament, okay? Verse 15, back in Leviticus. He says, From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. So there you see where we get these names, okay? Uh, you are to count off seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, the day, that you, the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. Now, the word 50 or 50th in the Greek language is Pentecost. And that's where we get our word for Pentecost, okay? That's, that's where uh, that comes from. In verse 17, continuing on, it says, From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Did you notice that? There's, there's yeast in this one, okay? Baked with yeast, it says. That's different than all the other offerings that we've read about so far in the book of Leviticus, I pointed out to you so that you can mark it. Verse 18, present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect. One young bull and two rams, they will be a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, which at this time of the year would have been wheat grains, okay? 
So this is a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Verse 19, then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together, together with the bread of the first fruits. They're a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you're to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work, for this is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Let's pause here for a minute. This is the feast of first fruits. So in verse 17, again, I pointed out, this is not barley, but it is actually wheat. And on the feast of weeks or Pentecost, they were to offer two baked loaves of wheat bread that were leavened, that were leavened. And that's important. This is the only time that they offered leavened bread as an offering. Now, the Jewish rabbis believed that these two loaves of bread commemorated the giving of the law of Moses. Remember how Moses received the law and he descended from Mount Sinai. He had the two stone tablets there in his hands. They believe that these two loaves represent that and that, that the, the leaven supposedly is tied into how the law is meant to uh, expose sin. Okay, it teaches us what sin is, okay? That's the Jewish rabbi interpretation. Now, Christians believe that actually these two loaves can or also anticipate the birth of the church. You see, before the church, there were basically two distinguished groups of people according to the scriptures. There was the Jewish nation through which God was desiring to reveal himself to the Gentile nations, but then the rest were Gentiles, So there was Jew and there was Gentile in the scriptures. But on the day of Pentecost, that distinguishing wall was torn down by Jesus Christ. That's what what Ephesians 2 verse 14 tells us when it says that Jesus is our peace. Who has made, uh, he has made both of them one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. You see, the church is indeed a mixed loaf. It is, it is full of sinners, so to speak. Sinners that need Jesus. That church, is, it consists of Jews and Gentiles. It consists of all who come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the harvest that comes in Acts chapter 2 and continues today is all part of the harvest period of God's grace on the earth. Okay, so that's how this is related to the feast of um, weeks. Now we, I believe, are nearing the end of the harvest period. I, I believe that if you study these feasts, you can tie each one of them to Christ's life, his coming, and the birth of the church. What's interesting is that those first four feasts that we've looked at tonight, they all came in the the, the first part of the year. The spring and the early summer there of the year. But then there was that summer period when the wheat was ripening before it was brought in, before it's all the way done. And then we'll see next week as we finish this chapter, we're going to be looking at the Feast of Trumpets which kicked off the season of the fall harvests. What's interesting to me is that if we can tie each one of these four spring feasts to the life of Jesus Christ and to the church, then what does that tell us about the last three? And that's where it gets interesting. 
there are those that believe, and, and I do believe that this is possible, um, that, and, and, you know, well, let me finish verse 22, and then we'll get into that, okay? I'm getting ahead of myself on my notes, and I'm just going to confuse everybody. So let me, let me just say this. I believe we're nearing the moment when we come to the Feast of Trumpets, and in the Feast of Trumpets, they sounded, uh, the, the, the people would sound trumpets, and the, and the priest would sound a trumpet from the tabernacle, and that was the signal to gather everybody together. And it's interesting um, that in the New Testament, Jesus introduces that, that, that idea that he is going to come again to gather us, to take us to be with him. And then in uh, the Apostle Paul, he expounds more on that new doctrine that Jesus Christ introduced to the church in John chapter 14. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the trump of the Lord that's going to be sounded. And, and then we're going to be gathered together in the blink of an eye to be with the Lord forever. That doctrine of the rapture. More on that next week. Let's finish now with verse 22. <clears throat> And this will be our last verse tonight. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. I love the Lord's heart. He, he has such a heart for the poor. He has such a heart for the needy. Here he orders that they remember to leave those gleanings there on the corners of their fields for those that were not so uh, fortunate, that didn't have food on their tables, they could come out and they could glean during that harvest season and make up for the loss that they felt in their families. Ruth is a perfect example of this. She's one person who benefited from this provision to the poor. And as we conclude our study for tonight, I hope that you haven't failed to see that the, the obvious relationship of these Old Testament feasts with the first coming and the birth of the church in the New Testament. You see, the Passover reminds us that Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. When we trust in his death as a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins, his blood covers us and we avoid the wrath of God against all the wrongs that we've ever committed. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. The unleavened bread... That represents Christ's sinless body being offered and broken for you and for me. The first fruits reminds us of Resurrection Sunday, Easter, when Jesus Christ gives us a taste of what is to come. The glory that awaits the man and the woman that puts their faith in him. It's the first fruits of the harvest that's continuing to this day. Then there's the Pentecost, which is the birth of the church 50 days after Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. We know that 40 days later, he ascended into heaven. And 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit fell. And it came and tongues of fire rested above the apostles in the upper room. And they spoke and they prophesied and they spoke in tongues that day. And they preached the gospel and 3,000 men and women came to know the Lord that day. It's amazing. So the birth of the church tied into Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. If these four spring feasts, as I said before, if they're related to those things, could it be that the remaining fall feasts would relate to the time of the end after the harvest is gathered 
after, after that last Gentile believer professes faith in Christ, will it be that we experience the Feast of Trumpets in a whole new way, in a whole new vibrant way? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. But I don't think that we should get obsessed by that, okay? I think we gotta keep a balance, right? We gotta keep that balance and know why we're here in the meantime. So we'll talk more about that next week as we finish out this chapter. But in the, middle, in the meantime, just remind you tonight, I hope that you've been pointed to Jesus Christ. He is seen clearly in these Old Testament chapters. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord Jesus, we thank you that even in the Old Testament, even in a book like Leviticus where uh, it, it can be difficult to read because of the laws, Lord, that we find and how we, we, we just don't relate to them in our culture today. But yet, Lord, if we'll take the time, we can trace that scarlet thread that runs all throughout the scriptures, leading us to you, leading us to your precious blood that was shed for us. Lord, we thank you that you would do that. We thank you tonight that you would die on the cross for our sins in our place. Lord, we think of those in our lives that need you tonight. We pray that you would help us to bring you to them. And Lord Jesus, that we would be about your business in these times. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.